Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. I got a lot of cool stuff for you guys today. Uh, some stuff in the housekeeping that's maybe a little bit different than normal, so please, if you Normally, jump ahead. Don't do that today because uh, there's some cool things that, that I want to let you know about. One, the Shelf Reliance contest has ended, and uh, they'll get back to me with uh, how I can announce the winner. A lot of times people don't want to be you know, Tom Smith of uh, Chicago, Illinois. They want to be Tom from Illinois or whatever. So however that comes out, I'll give you guys the winner. But uh, by now, the winner should have been told. So if you didn't hear, you probably didn't win, but we'll have a new contest. I'll be talking to... Uh, Robert over at Ready Made Resources uh, and uh, setting up the uh, AR-15 upper, and I'll get to work right away on the next contest. I'll go out to our sponsors and see if anybody wants to do something big. I'm requiring to participate in this uh, contest uh, series that we're doing now a minimum uh, sale price of $200 for uh, uh, the prize, and they can go as high as they want, but that will be minimum. So these will be big prizes going forward on the way out, uh, and I think we got. I might be. Maybe I'll hit up John Willis for this. I think. Uh, I think he might really uh, uh, want to get involved with this, and he makes some pretty awesome gear as well. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I'm going to try to book this thing right out to the end of the year. So lots of stuff with the contest coming. Next up, been in the website in the last couple of days. You probably noticed it's been redesigned, and it looks awesome. It looks a lot like it did uh, a while ago when we had a theme on there called Athlupa, uh, which uh, the database got hacked up on it, and it, it didn't work anymore. So I got Jackie Dana. Uh, from Getting Dirty Designs to uh, code the site. She did the coding on the WordPress theme, and I want to give her props for that. She didn't get paid for it, so like she did for free or anything, but she was well worth it. She worked with me. She made it work. She worked on the browser compatibility issues, and we're still tweaking a few things like that. So if you need a custom theme developed, check out Getting Dirty Designs. And, um, you know, if you want, maybe stop by today's show notes and tell Jackie thank you for all the work she did to get the site where it is. That beautiful uh, header at the top in the blue with Val on it and the Survival Podcast, uh, that was designed by Tiffany Rockwell, who runs our gear shop, who also does design work. So if you need design, check out Tiffany. So those are just a few things I wanted to say. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and get into the topic of today's show. Um, today's show is going to be listener feedback, like we usually do on Monday, even though it's a Wednesday, because, well... Uh, we all know what happened last week with some things getting kind of jacked out of place, and uh, I just want to make sure we don't fall behind on listener feedback stuff because so much of it comes in. Uh, one more quick announcement before we do the sponsors. I am going to have somebody on the show tomorrow that is going to blow your mind, absolutely blown your mind. Chef Maribel, also known as the Food Diva, who's going to talk with us about kitchen cutlery, uh, cooking techniques, and all kinds of cool stuff, and why, if you really want to understand food, sooner or later you should pick something up and go hunting. Uh, she's pretty awesome. She was even on, uh, what's the show with, uh, Gordon Ramsay, uh, Hell's Kitchen, I think season two, and she made it to like the sixth round. So, pretty big celebrity chef coming on to talk about some interesting sides of cooking. That'll be tomorrow. Now, we're taking care of our sponsors today. Got some cool ones to mention today, like they're all cooler. They wouldn't be here in the first place. But some things about each that, uh, I think you should know. 
Uh, first up today, MERS-radio.com. It's MERS with a dash of the word radio.com. And the best way to find them, go to the survivalpodcast.com, use the banner, and click through. But, you know, MERS radios, I say this all the time, but what's cool about them is you can take these motion detectors and you put them out on your property. And uh, then you wire that back through your communication system. So if there's movement in an area... Um, then you, you know that you know Sector 1, Sector 2, Sector 3, Sector 4, something's going on out there. You can check into it. What I'm going to add to that, though, and I, I need to pick up a few more motion sensors from Rob to add to my system, and I'm looking for the gear right now, though, but I'm also going to put out wireless infrared cameras uh, all around the property. Now, they won't be tied into the MERS system, but because MERS alerts me something's going on in Sector 1, I can pull up the cameras that are covering Sector 1 and check it out. So I'm going to really beef up the homestead security. And it, you know, just having the cameras, it wouldn't be the same without the MERS connection wired into it, knowing where to look, when to look. And it'll also save you from having to go out there and make yourself vulnerable. Just a new thought on the MERS system and where it might work into your security plans, especially if you already have a camera system set up. Uh, next it up today, Safe Castle Row. We mentioned them yesterday because they make some really cool hardened shelters. I always tell you about their uh, site and all the cool stuff that they have there. Uh, but I, I want you to consider maybe checking out uh, their, their sister site. And I'll link directly to that in addition to their normal site today about their hardened shelters. Uh, hardened shelters are something that, that often get overlooked. And as I said, there's some real practical reasons to consider them. So check that out today. Next up, remember, connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the forum. And if you um, if you want to help support the show at 20 cents an episode, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get each episode coming in at about 20 cents an episode. Of course, the episodes are always free. You never have to pay for them. You can listen all you want. We'll make more of that type of thing. But if you just think, you know, I want to do something in return for this, the content we get on the show, 20 cents an episode is what it comes out to at 50 bucks a year. And... Um, you will get a great return of investment. I'll just leave it at that today. There's a lot of stuff in there beyond just helping out the show. Uh, discounts, ebooks, video content, you name it. Um, and remember, if you are military or law enforcement or Peace Corps, prior service or active duty, you qualify for a service. We're going to call it a service discount, service to your nation discount. Uh, email me before you join. I'll send you the code. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. As I said, today is a feedback show. I want to start doing this. I, I keep forgetting. I need to put it on my whiteboard so I don't forget. I want to start reading one of the money-saving tips uh, at the beginning of each show or at least maybe several times a week, from all the money-saving stuff that came in that we never got to. Uh, but this one comes in from Paul, and Paul says, uh, Free meat year-round. Hey, Jack, the following quote I posted on the deer hunting with the bow part, uh, one comment I posted a while back. I just wanted you all to be aware of another possible resource. I'm not sure about other states, but here in Wisconsin there are tags you can get from farmers called agricultural damage shooting permits. These tags will allow you to shoot, usually with firearms, but sometimes with a bow, one antlerless deer per farm outside of the regular season. Any deer you bag does not count against your regular license tag limits. Here's a link you can utilize to find out more about these permits. The site from the Wisconsin DNR will provide a list of farmers who participate in this program statewide. And there's a link I will include in today's show notes for those of you in Wisconsin. Uh, one other thing, farmers who join this program must allow at least two hunters per 40 acres of huntable land access to their property during the regular hunting season to hunt for whichever type of animal their ag damage tags were issued for, deer, bear, geese, turkey. These tags are free. In fact, it is illegal for farmers to charge you anything for these tags. I think this fits the criteria for many for the TSP Money Saver Show. Yeah, I, I would say so, Paul. It really does. The thing that I'm not sure... 
The thing is that I'm not sure a program like this is available in every state. The individual can Google search for their state along with the words crop damage tags, agricultural shooting permit, nuisance or damage permit, and the like. States such as Maryland, Connecticut, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York all have similar programs. Thanks for the show. Jack Tall Paul on the forums from central Wisconsin. You know, that's a really good thing to look into. And a lot of times it might not be an agricultural damage tag. There's all types of things like this that you should check with your state game department about. Uh, a good call to your local game warden to say, hey, is there anything like this? It's not the same thing. Uh, we'll usually get you an answer. Those guys really are out there to help the, the honest hunter. Um, you know, I, I would actually tell you that game wardens are some of my favorite law enforcement people. Uh, the guys that live on the lakes and harass boaters, not so much. But the actual game wardens that are out there in the field all seem to be pretty great guys trying to do a job that's uh, not really thanked a lot because they love what they're doing. Um, but if you make that call, they'll, they'll probably be able to direct you and help you out. Some of the things I can tell you about, uh, South Texas, a lot of the deer, uh, deer hunting operations, even though it's not for agricultural damage and they do charge you for it, they get special permits for antlerless de deer to help keep the herds in balance. A place I used to hunt down, uh, in, uh, in South Texas called the Canna Ranch would get them on antlerless deer and you'd be able to go down there. And I think a hunt over four days was 500 bucks, including lodging. And you could take up the three antlerless deer. That to me was a deal, especially in a state like Texas where it's so hard to find good land to hunt that's publicly available without paying through the nose for it. Uh, so that, that was uh, an example up here in Hot Springs, uh, village inside the gated community up here, which is like, 60,000 acres or something insane like that. Uh, they have a deer population problem and it's archery only. You have to go to a class and you have to shoot and prove that you can do things the right way and there's certain regulations you have to follow when you're in there. But basically you can shoot as many as you want in there to help control the population because they can't get enough hunters. So those are just two other examples. So, uh, if you're a hunter, uh, this is a great way to, uh, to get out there and get more meat at no cost. And those of you who are new to hunting, it's a great way to find places to hunt. And it's a great way to get out there when there's not really so much competition from other hunters. I'd much rather hunt a few weeks before a season starts than in the middle of the season uh, when the deer are pressured, especially if you're a new hunter and you don't really know how to pattern them and deal with the way the patterns change under pressure. So there you go. Um, next one comes from Zach. Zach says... I was listening to your show today and thought I would help by asking a question. I'm relatively young and the government does not feel I need to save for retirement. So I do not have a 401k plan. What should I do to keep from falling into that trap? Uh, I will be eligible for my company's plan in a few weeks. And I said, what do you mean the government does not feel? And he emailed me back and he said, um, I was told by my last company, the government regulations that you cannot have a 401k until you reach the age of 21. I just started a new job and have not inquired about their program as I'm not sure how long I will stay here. All right, here's what I'm going to say about the 401k. All right? The same thing I tell anybody, Zach and anybody else out there. Once you're 21 and you qualify for your company's 401k plan, if your company has a substantial match, And that's going to be at least 10 cents on the dollar. And we're talking 50 cents on the dollar, dollar for dollar, something like that. That really makes sense. Because even at 10 cents on the dollar, it's a 10% return straight out of the gate. Do the Roth 401k if they have the option. If they do not, you really got to have a good match for me to even bother with it. Okay, But if you have a good solid match, let's say 50 cents on the dollar for the first 2% or 3% or 5%, whatever that is. If you have it in your budget and you can still save some money other than this, and if you can't save any additional money, don't do it. 
All right, you need to have some money that you can get your hands on. So let's say the most you can put away from your paycheck is 10%. That's all you have in your budget in your current lifestyle is 10% savings. 5% goes into 401k, 5% goes into regular savings, period. If you're too young for a 401k, if your company doesn't do a 401k match, or if they do a light match and they don't offer a Roth, or any other reason you don't feel like it's worth participating in their program, do the same allocation, half and half, Set up a Roth IRA. You can do that. Just about any bank out there can help you do that, but it may not be the way you really want to go. One of the best places you could set up an IRA, a Roth IRA, is going to be E-Trade. And the reason I say that is trading inside the IRA will take you 10 seconds to do what you'll spend five minutes discussing with your financial advisor and then wait three days for him to execute for you. So that's why I like E-Trade for an IRA. And you can use Scott Trade. Uh, any of these companies are out there that are online trading companies generally let you set up an IRA. People say, what about holding gold in an IRA? Well, you know, use a gold ETF. In, in a regulated account like an IRA, a 401k, don't screw with physical gold in there. It's not worth it. You have the, the least regulated, most anonymous form of currency known to man in gold and silver. And then we want to put it into the most regulated, government-oversighted form of an account known to man. It doesn't make any sense. So that's where I would advise you to go there. The big thing I want everybody to take away from this is if you can save 10%, 20%, 5%, 3%, whatever percent of your income you can allocate to a pure savings you know, cachet, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, okay, one more time, do freaking not put 100% of it into tax-deferred accounts. If you do, you are stupid. And if you've been doing it, it's not your fault that you're stupid. Society and financial liars have taught you to be stupid. It is dumb. It is dumb, 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 dumb because it's difficult to get your money out and it puts your money into a highly regulated form of money. It does give you certain protections, but what it also does is it makes that money very, very visible to everybody that could ever have visibility into your money, especially the government. You need some money in cash. You need some money in physical gold or silver or both. You've got to have some physical money. You need some money at some point in your life to pull out of a savings account and buy commodities for your life. Not commodities like pork uh, bellies on, on, the, on the trade uh, floor, right? Commodities like things that you will own for the rest of your life, like from small things like garden tools to major things like a solar system. Okay, uh, or a photovoltaic solar system, or a windmill, or a tilapia uh, fish house, or whatever it is you want for your life, that you want to build long-term assets in your life, you're going to need cash for that. And you do not want to wait till you're 59 and a half or older to be able to do those things. You want to slowly build them over your life, so by the time you're 59 and a half, whatever's in some kind of a government pension program, or a 401k, or IRA, or whatever it is, is gravy. Because your life needs are already taken care of. Versus the other way society teaches. It will not happen if you put it all in there. The other thing with the 401ks, one more time, this is so important. Whatever the company will match with a substantial match, max it if it's in your budget to do so. Once it goes to $1 you're contributing, okay, one penny that you're going to contribute that they're not going to match, put it in your own IRA. Stop screwing around the 401k. The 401k, they give you five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten choices. Uh, some 401ks don't even have a cash equivalency fund. They tell you bonds are your safe bet. Bonds can crash through the floor, especially bond funds. 
All right, because it's about trading the bond versus holding the bond in maturity. So when you have an IRA, you have complete freedom and control. When you have a Roth IRA, should you get an emergency and need your money, you can withdraw all the money you've contributed to the Roth IRA tax and penalty free. What you can't take out is the interest that you've earned and the profit that you've earned on the money if you fill the forms out correctly. So that's why I just, you know, be careful with the 401ks, folks. And really be careful with this 100% in a tax deferred of all your savings. Dumb, 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 dumb. And there's no other word for it. All right, next one. Uh, Jack, I'm starting. I'm looking to start some sort of a part-time business while I work full-time. I do not have a ton of cash to start it. Any suggestions would be appreciated. Love the show. Eric, Eric, I'm going to tell you what I tell everybody. Start a blog. Okay, I don't care because I don't care what your business will eventually become. You're going to need a blog. So build the blog following now, even if it doesn't make you any money in the short term. You can throw AdSense on there. You can get, you know, you get five, six thousand or more people a month to your blog. You can probably get a few direct sponsors. You get ten to twenty thousand people a month. You can definitely get some direct sponsors. They're not going to pay you a lot, but they'll pay you a little bit. You can start getting up to around a hundred thousand unique visits a month. Uh, to a blog, you can make a significant income on sponsorship. You can probably make easily somewhere between ten and thirty thousand dollars, depending on your niche, what sponsors you're going after, how well your traffic converts for them, etc. So there's a business unit just in the blog, um, and even if it's five thousand dollars, if everything you blog about becomes a tax deduction, and you can create a deduction of ten thousand dollars a year with a blog and a five thousand dollar profit, that's better than fifteen thousand dollars in income. Uh, that might be a bit extreme, but it certainly can be done five and five so that the money washes the other money out till it comes out to a zero. That is even uh, better than 10000 in the bottom line of what stays in your pocket. And as a blogger, you are a, quote, journalist, unquote. As a journalist, almost anything you buy, purchase, use, or do, check with your CPA, is tax deductible if you use it to provide content. Whether you're reviewing it or it's necessary for you to do your job or what have you, it is the most flexible thing in the world you can be as a, quote, journalist, unquote. All right, so that, that's the one thing I'm going to tell you there. The other thing, though, is follow your passion, right? If you here, Here's the thing. There's all kinds of people coming out with prepper blogs. Some people that are doing these prepper blogs are really, like, this is their life, man. It's what they're doing. Everything, in the, everything that they do is about this, and they love it the way that I love it and the way that some of you love it, and that's great. But some of them are doing it because... Well, Jack's doing well with his site, and I saw this other site, and James Rawls' blog is really popular, and these guys have all sold out their advertising, so it's a good niche. The problem with that is you're coming into a space where all the people that are really successful are so passionate about what they're doing. If your passion does not equal their passion, you're going to lose. So why do that? Why waste your time? And I don't care if it's it's, it's wine and you're going up against guys like Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, I, I don't care what it is. I don't care who. I don't care if it's sports and you're going up against um, you know uh, Midwest sports fans, Jared over there. I don't care who it is. If you're going up against passionate people like that and you don't bring the passion, you're going to lose. And, and my question is, well, then why would you bother wasting your time? Why wouldn't you go to a place where you have that passion Bring that passion and let everybody lose trying to compete with you as you build out your niche. So I'm going to say a blog is the way to go. WordPress is your blog format. Uh, you can get hosting from my site. There's a little banner all the way at the bottom for HostGator. For, blogger, for bloggers, they are a great web host. Uh, they're very, very affordable. You get uh, cPanel hosting with something called Fantastico in it, which is the standard hosting they all there has. You go into your control panel after you set up your account and they set it up for you. You click on the little Fantastico guy with a smiley face under blogs. You'll see WordPress. You click on that. You fill out like two forms. You click submit. 
bam, your blog's up. Go and pick a nice theme. You can install that in 20 seconds. Go to themes, add new, search, find what you want, throw it in there. At least get it started, put content on it. Down the road, pay somebody to do some custom programming and design like you see what I've done with my site. Don't even worry about that. Don't worry about the way it looks. Get content on it. Get it going. Set up a Facebook account, a Twitter account, a YouTube account. Start putting content out. Start participating in the community. Don't just tweet, I got a new post, and Facebook, I got a new post, right? Get involved in conversations. Share information. Share other people's content. Comment on other people's blogs. You do that, and you do it in a world that you're passionate about, you will find a business model. If you, if you try to create the business while you're serving a full-time job, and it's not passion-driven, it'll never succeed. You can build a business that's not based on passion. You can build a very big, successful business that's not based on passion. But then you better be doing it full-time from day one. You better have money to float for a year to two years, and you better see it as solely the operational end of the business. So that means you're hiring people, you're building a staff, you're investing money, um, you're paying your bills out of pocket for a year or two. And you can build multi-million dollar businesses that way. But it's, it's a path that for many people leads to misery. I know for me, that path was a miserable path. I hated it. I would hire people. They would never really see the vision that I had for the company. They never really had the passion. They were just looking for a job. And you have to be kind of the person that doesn't really care. It's actually better to not be passionate about a business like that. To not even care. So all you do is you sit down with your, your board of directors, your shareholders, uh, your, your, your C-level team, whoever it is, depending on the size of the business, and every quarter you sit down, you look at profit and loss, financial statements, you run that business completely by the numbers, and you don't give a damn about anybody in it. That's how you run a passion, a passion void business. A passionate business, you're better off on your own, at least in the beginning, and you build it to something, and then you choose to expand from there. Uh, it's a bit long, but that's that's the answer to that question. So uh, next one comes from a different Eric. Eric says, uh, uh, are you going to start dumping half your pay into this? And it's a bill um, from Congress. It's a proposed bill. So this isn't a law yet. Uh, I can't see them having a hard time getting it passed, though. I put this out on Facebook over the weekend. Uh, it, it just makes me sigh. And you might wonder why if you didn't see the postings about it. But the bill is H.R. 2411, H.R. 2411, currently in the House of Representatives in committee. And uh, it is called the Reduce America's Debt Now Act of 2011. Okay. Well, doesn't that sound great? Reduce America's Debt Now Act of 2011. Gee, libertarians like Jack Spierko must be ringing the bell of liberty over this one, especially since it's a voluntary law. That's right. This law would be completely voluntary. You would not have to participate. Your employer would if you chose to make him, but you wouldn't. Starting to sound even better, isn't it? Wait till you hear how it works. This is how it works. What it would be is when you fill out your little tax form that says like how many deductions you get and all, so they know how much federal income tax to withhold from you, so that at the end of the year you can beg for some of it back or pay a little bit more, there'd be additional boxes. And you could say, I want additional money withheld from my, my check. Well, that sounds like what we have now. Like Some people know they have a side business or whatever and they make too much money, so they want additional withholding so that they're going to have a refund or not owe any money at the end of the year. But, oh, no, that's not what this box is for. This, that box will stay there. This is a new box. It says take 50 bucks or 20 bucks or 10 bucks or 5 bucks or $1,000 or however much money you want to give. Okay, It's charity for the debt. That's what it is. You decide, uh, Mr. Prepper out there, that you know when you go work your ass off 
every damn day, and your government's already taking tax after tax after tax from you. They tax you when you drive. They tax you when they turn on, when you turn on the light. They tax your income. They tax your spending. They tax your freaking food. They tax your energy. They tax you, tax you. They tax your phone service. Tax, tax, and on top of tax. They tax your property. They, you know, they, they tax everything that you do. You are a walking tax. Well, now you can voluntarily pay an additional tax, but the difference is that whatever you give, they will guarantee you will go to pay against our debt. Our debt of over $14.4 trillion that they're currently looking to make bigger. Our debt that will grow to $20 trillion in the next eight years. Your money will go to help pay down that debt, which is a mathematical, mathematical, mathematical impossibility. It is impossible to pay off or even significantly pay down the debt. All this bill will do will take more money from the American taxpayers and whatever amount of money goes in to pay down the debt will be immediately available for additional borrowing by the, by the government, by the treasury, by the Fed and just increase the debt by that amount. It'll be a wash. The only difference is The money will run through the little machine, the bond generation, bond trading, Fed acquisition machine, and the boys at Goldman Sachs will make their piece on it. The Fed will get the, acquire the debt and we'll owe it to them instead of the people that bought the bonds originally. And the country will get squat and you'll get squat. And isn't this a great plan? So I got a better idea for Congress if they want to reduce the debt now. Cut spending. There you go. That's the whole thing. There's no more than that. Not raise taxes for the wealthy, not raise taxes on the poor. Not just You can do whatever you want with taxes as long as you reduce them for everybody or, or more fairly allocate them so that uh, you know people that work their ass off for 200 grand a year aren't paying out the nose, and then people that work their ass off for 50 grand don't pay anything. That's where we're at right now. People, a family that makes $50,000 a year right now pays no income tax. Now, I'm not going to say they're not a taxpayer because they pay all the other taxes I taxed about. You do whatever you want with taxes as long as you don't increase it. But the only plan that's going to fix this shit is to cut spending. But instead, they want you to volunteer your money. So I want to hear from you guys in the comments section today. Who's going to volunteer their money for this? Now, here's what I will tell you. Uh, all the, the whiny, crying babies out there that think people should pay more, that think taxes should be higher, you tell them if this thing passes, and I can't see it not passing, because um, it just doesn't seem like there would be any real roadblocks to it. If this thing passes, the only upside is you can tell people, like, I think rich, and when Barack Obama says, I think wealthy people like me should pay a little bit more so that poor people can have a little bit more. Hey, you know what, ass clown? Fill in the box. Give 100% if you want to. Just don't come take what I and the other American people have worked for. Um, good news. Bear uh, will have to pay U.S. farmers $750 million in genetically modified rice damages. So for once, the tables have truly been turned. We all know the story of Percy Schmeiser up in Canada who had Monsanto's genetically modified canola invade his organic canola. Uh, cross-pollinate into his field, and then uh, Monsanto successfully sued Smizer and said, you stole our, our patented genes. And Smizer said, I don't want your freaking patented genes. You invaded me. And the Canadian court said, uh, doesn't matter how you got Monsanto's property, you had it, you're in patent violation, and the Smizers lost that case. Um, fortunately, cooler heads have prevailed in this long battle here in the United States. Let me read a little bit of this to you. 
Uh, Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, 2000, uh, July 7, 2011. Bear Corp Sciences has agreed to pay 750 million, 517 million euros, I guess this is a European sto uh, story, uh, to settle claims by U.S. rice farmers that the company's genetically modified rice has contaminated their crops. Around 11,000 farmers in the states of Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, and Texas filed lawsuits against Bayer Crop Science, a subgroup of the German chemical producer Bayer AG. The settlement program will be open to all U.S. farmers who had been growing long-grain rice during the period of 2006 to 2010. In July 2006, Bayer Liberty Link Rice 601, a genetically modified variety that was not approved for commercial distribution or human consumption anywhere in the world, appeared in the harvest of farmers. So that's a little bit different. So this was un, uh, this particular strain was never approved, unlike what happened with the Smizer. So that's a big key difference here. U.S. rice exports to European Union, Japan, and Russia declined. The USDA's Animal and Plant Inspection Service initiated an investigation on August 1st of 2006 after Bear Corp Science reported that regulated genetic material LL L L R I C E 601, the, <laughs> it's just rice, right? Had been detected in a long grain variety of Chenier rice. Uh, the investigation was expanded February 16th to include discovery of genetically, uh, re regulated genetic material, later identified as L L R I C E 604, in the long grain variety of Clearfield 131. While the GM proteins were found, APHIS decided not to pursue enforcement action against Bear Crop Science, uh, and there's a link for more detailed. Uh, but the upside is the farmers kept pushing and were able to successfully sue Bear, and Bear now has had to admit that their genetically modified crop damaged the crop of these other farmers and had to pay money. This is a huge legal precedent. And every farmer out there that's ever approached by the Monsanto or the Bear or the Conagra Seed Police ever again and threatened with legal action, needs to immediately get an attorney and immediately use this precedent. Here's the key. This is, this is one of these legal decisions that seems cut and dry to the average person, but it's more complex than it seems. Because of the technicality here, the precedent only has so much strength. It is legitimate for the farmer to say, my crop has been damaged. Because that particular strain of rice was not approved for sale, so it made their crop worthless. If this happens with corn, let's say, with an approved strain of genetically modified corn, let's say uh, a Roundup-ready corn, atrazine-ready corn, or a corn with the toxin that kills the corn borer worm, that is approved for sale. So if that infects the fellow farmer, his, his, his case that he's been damaged is weakened because he still can sell the corn. So now he has to say, well, I was growing GMO-free corn, marketing that. Here's the premium I'm getting. Now I have to f sell at a loss. I'm due the difference. Or I was selling organic corn, and now I can't sell as organic anymore, and I'm due the difference. But the key is, the defense is, now when Monsanto goes after these people and says, you're stealing our patented life form, It has been now decided in a court case with, 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 with citable precedent. This is very, I, knew, I might sound a little bit more excited about this than you, you think I should, but we now have a legal precedent that says when your gene goes in their corn, it's your responsibility. Back to a very simple biblical tenant. And it's not a biblical thing, it's just where this tenant resides. About one ox goring the other, right? That's way back in the Old Testament. What that is is an old agricultural principle. If I have a farm with no fence 
and it's been there for a long time, and you buy land near my land, and you want to range cattle, it's your responsibility to fence your cattle in, not my responsibility to fence your cattle out. This is a restoration of that agricultural principle, and uh, I, I I think that it's it's a good one. We'll see where it goes, but it's definitely good news. Now, Ask Clown of the Century Award possibly here. Um, I, I have to do this on today's show because there is so much uh, feedback about it. I've gotten, I bet, 300 emails. Uh, no exaggeration, 300 emails on this one thing. It's all over my fan page. It's all over Twitter. People are pissed about it as they should be. Um, there's a ton of stories out there about it. I'm going to use the first one that came to me. It's on theagitator.com, and the title is, Does Michelle Obama Know About This? And that, of course, is because the First Lady has her own garden at the White House, uh, and I don't think it's necessarily thinking that, that, that she's the savior in this, but if she wants to do a good PR move, now would be the time. Um, let me read it to you, because this is unbelievable. Oak Park, Michigan. Their front yard was torn up after replacing a sewer line, so instead of replacing the dirt with grass, one Oak Park woman put in a vegetable garden, and now the city is seeing green. The list goes on. Fresh basil, cabbage, carrots, tomatoes, cucumbers, and more, all filling five large planter boxes that fill the Bass family's front yard. I'll put a link, folks. What I want you to understand is this doesn't look tacky. This looks very, very well done. There's a little bit of grass out in front. It's mulched up to the house. The planters are all really, really nice. This is this is beautifully done. Julie Bass says, We thought we were minding our own business, doing something not ostentatious and certainly not obnoxious and nothing that is a blight on the neighborhood, so we didn't think people would care very much. But some carried very much, called the city. The city sent out code enforcement. They warned us at first that we had to move the vegetables from the front, that no vegetables were allowed in the front yard. We didn't move them because we didn't think we were doing anything wrong, and you shouldn't have. I mean, even according to city code, we didn't think we were doing anything wrong, so they ticketed us and charged us with a misdemeanor, Bass said. City code says that all unpaved portions of the site shall be planted with grass or ground cover or shrubbery or other suitable live plant material. Tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers are what the Basses see as suitable. However, Oak Park's planning and technology director, Kevin Ruluski, who should be inundated with, with just so much mail and so much media contact, he hasn't gotten time to think or fart. That's what should happen to this guy. Says the city disagrees. He says if you look at the dictionary, suitable means common. You can look all throughout the city and you'll never find another vegetable garden that consumes the entire front yard. So what is suitable from another local news support? Uh, when, when we asked Roniski why it's not suitable, he said the same thing. If you look at the definition of suitable in Western Dictionary, it will say common. So if you look around in any other community, what's common in the front yard is a nice grass yard with beautiful trees and bushes and flowers, he said. God forbid your yard doesn't include beautiful trees, bushes, and flowers. It's your job, Oak Park citizens, to give Ken Roniski pretty things to look at. According to Bass's blog, she's demanding her right to a jury trial. So the city plans to throw the book at her. Our attorney spoke to the prosecutor today. For the record, my crush on him is totally finished after today. His position, they're going to take this all the way officially. That means I'm facing 93 j days in jail if they win. 93 days in jail because they planted five very nice, very aesthetically pleasing planter boxes with vegetables in their front yard 
Oak Park, Michigan, you should be ashamed of yourself. The entire city government and anybody in that government who's not lifted a finger to put a stop to this, you are a maggot. I, I swear to God, anybody that has the ability to do something positive to, to, to affect this in the Oak Park government, if you're on the planning commission or zoning commission or anything up there that could you could you could do something to, to just make this stop or at least mitigate it and you have it and you think it's okay to do what you're doing to these people, you're a freaking maggot. I mean, that's a very strong piece of language for me to use, much stronger than what I typically call people as ass clowns. But seriously, who the hell are you to tell a person what they can have in their front yard? Now, I can understand if they had six junk cars rotting and rusting away. Folks, you look at this, and this is one to make a stink over any way and every way that you can. And if you are from Oak Park, Michigan, or you know someone from Oak Park, Michigan, or you live close to Oak Park, Michigan, I'm going to say something I don't ever say. Pick the phone up and call those ass clowns and tell them what you think. I usually don't say, do that, right? I usually say, if you think, then you should. But no, this is a place we have to stand together, folks. In fact, I would say uh, that if somebody can get me a number, if somebody can get me a phone number of a place we can call that a human being will answer, uh, I will help shut down the Oak Park government switchboards. Uh, I will beat this one into submission for as long as it takes. This is bullshit. If this lady goes to jail, it might actually be a good thing. Not for her. I don't wish that for her. But it might wake people up to a point where there's got to be a point. There's got to be a point when we stop this shit. And if there was ever a case for jury nullification, this is it. Um, anybody sitting on a jury like that, if you find that person guilty... Instead of using jury nullification, you're either ignorant of your rights or you're, you're, you're abdicating them when you shouldn't. Seriously, this is a disgrace and it should not happen in the United States of America today. Um, sorry to get off on a rant, but that's just, the, that, that's just reality. Um, and this is why I won't let you know. This isn't a homeowners association. This is a city code enforcement busting these people for five planter boxes. And again, you got to look at the picture to see what it looks like, to realize what a pile of crap the city of, of Oak Park, Michigan must be. Hey, aren't you guys going bankrupt? I bet you Oak Park is on the list of cities that are near bankruptcy. Maybe you should see the fixing your freaking uh, books instead of running around harassing people for growing vegetables. They might need those vegetables when your city government economy collapses. Right? You might need those vegetables from your neighbors. Uh, oh, i got to stop. I'll, I'll just... This is the worst thing I've seen done uh, in the name of code enforcement having to do with gardens ever. It, it really is. And unlike some of the other things where I go, this is bad, this is stupid, they shouldn't do it, but I can understand it, I understand nothing about this. This is nothing but but but, but some jackass uh, who, who wants to make a point. Whoever's behind this is the kind of kid that had his book slapped out of his hands uh, in high school and had water thrown in his face when he drank from the water and had his shoes taken away from him. Look, dude, I'm sorry that that kind of stuff happened to you, but it was it was school and that's over and now you don't need to be a tyrannical little ass. How about you grow up and act like an adult and stop screwing with people? And I'll tell you what, if anybody get this douchebag on my show, I'd love to have him on. I'd love to grill his ass as to why he thinks this is appropriate. But I doubt the coward would ever show up. Let me move on before I just totally snap. Um, this comes from Richard. He'll get me out of this mode. And I'm sorry, guys. I'm really, really infuriated about this. Uh, Richard says, so this is my first year really growing a lot of different things in the garden. I'm wondering if maybe you could cover what kind of stuff is good canned versus dried and vacuum sealed. 
Also, I will have a small amount of berries, but while things like strawberries and blueberries are in season, I guess it would be good to go buy up a bunch of cheap fruits and veggies and can or dry them as well. I've been looking up some YouTube videos on canning and storing, but do you have any resources that you could provide for new uh, canners dehydrators? The best one I've found yet is everydayfoodstorage.net. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Um, for dehydrating, dehydrate to store is probably my favorite one. Uh, canning is I mean, I don't know. There's so many resources on canning. Uh, if somebody has a good resource on canning uh, that you'd like to share, put it in today's show notes, and I'll let the audience take care of that one. Um, but let's uh, let's look at a couple different things here. Do you can or do you dehydrate? Depends on what you want. And, and in some cases, it, it's both. Um, but we look at certain things, though. Like, if we look at a green bean. If you dehydrate a green bean and you end up making a casserole with green beans in it, it's pretty good. Okay. If you want to sit down to a plate of green beans with a little pat of butter on them, a little salt, pepper, maybe a little sprinkle of basil, uh, you want canned, not dehydrated. Right? You want what you ideally want is fresh. All right, for that application. Right. The next step would be a flash freezing. So that's going to be uh, you you blanch it and then you freeze it, and and that would be better than canned as far as the quality and taste of the food. And then you're going to move to canned. But any one of those three is pretty decent. Right, but you, if you want that bright green, a little bit of crispness left to them, you have to go with the flash freezing uh, or ideally fresh. Canned, you're gonna have that that blander taste, blander color, but they're still pretty good, and it still looks, tastes, and shaped like a green bean. Right? If we if we dehydrate a green bean, it never quite really looks like a green bean again. There's some things that rehydrate and look almost the way they were. So a green bean would be an example of something that dehydration is for everything you can't find the time to can or flash freeze. And, and that's all you're gonna, you know, all you're gonna do as far as beans go. We look at something like carrots. Uh, when it comes to carrots on your plate, again, I'd say the same thing. Except, but if you want to cook with carrots, where you're, um, you know, doing a mirepoix, which is uh, uh, peppers, onions, and carrots, um, for like a base, and that's a great base, uh, an aromatic base for soups and stews and all kinds of things that you would cook. Well. All three of those dehydrate beautifully, the peppers, the carrots, and the, and the onions. In fact, what you can do is you can dehydrate the three, mix them together and in, a, in a ratio of about one to one to one. And anytime you want to do a mirepoix, you take a cup of those, you throw it in a bowl, you throw some water in there, you wait for them to rehydrate into the saute pan they go, and how much more convenient could you want? So it's really about trying these foods in these dimensions and determining what you want to do with them. And not really seeing it being as a clear-cut choice, but how much do you want in one form versus another? When it comes to things like fruits and berries, um, dehydrating them definitely works. They get kind of a rubbery, leathery consistency. They're okay rehydrated. They're fine for cooking. So if you dehydrate bananas, strawberries, blueberries, all these things, uh, rehydrate and cook with them, they come out fabulous. As fresh fruits, not so much. It's nothing like a freeze-dried uh, strawberry, which reconstitutes and is very, very close to the original berry. Um, when you rehydrate um, a, a dehydrated strawberry, uh, you're going to get something that looks much more like strawberries you've cut up, put sugar on, and left in the refrigerator overnight where they kind of get thick and syrupy and soft. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's what you're going to end up with. And for them to really have uh, some good flavor, you're going to want to add a little bit of a sweetener. So uh, you would maybe be better off freezing a strawberry than dehydrating it. But again, it's all about what you want. Now, there's some other things you can do. Let me read the last little PS that uh, Rick left me on this. By the way, I'm brewing a smoked cherry porter tonight, 10 gallons all-grain full mash. I post a lot of homebrewing stuff on the forum. Let me know if you want me to send you a couple bottles when it's done. Absolutely send me some smoked cherry porter, Rick. Absolutely. But what I was reading that for really is 
a lot of these things can go into beer. So while the blueberries are available and really cheap, maybe it's time to make a good blueberry meat. Uh, strawberry wine, all right. Let's maybe we, maybe we get a hold of some uh, light light skin muscadine and we do a muscadine strawberry wine. Uh, that would be pretty awesome. So those are some other ways to get those things in there. But as far as dehydration, again, dehydrate to store, and two is the number two. Uh, they have a great uh, YouTube channel, and I used to talk about her a lot, and I just kind of let her fall off the radar. And she has a website as well, dehydratetostore.com. I'll put links to both of them today. That's the best dehydration resource that I know of. Again, canning is all about what your end result is. And what I like canning for best is making things, not so much just preserving individual things. So making different relishes and chow chows and chutneys and, and, and things like that. That I, I get a lot more gratification from with canning than simply preserving my green beans or preserving my carrots or what have you. Some things are really awesome canned, though. Like if you come across a really big stash of mushrooms, they're great dehydrated, but they're also pretty dadgone good canned. Canned mushrooms are nice. I like the canned meat. Uh, honestly, I think meat is one of the most underutilized things. Now, you got to use a pressure canner for that. Make sure you follow a good recipe. Get the temperatures right, the pressures right, and things. But canned meat is so versatile. And one of the things you can do to really stretch your meat larder is go to the grocery store. This is one of the, another one of money-saving tips, and I think I've mentioned it before. But there's usually a place where they take all the meat that is uh, maybe just about to go out of its expiration date, and they put it in a big pile, and it's dollar off, $2 a pound off sometimes, something like dirt cheap scoop up all of it you can get that you want to can. You know, it's usually your pork, beef, and chicken. And chicken, I'm a little, a little bit iffy on. Chicken's so cheap anyway. Um, if I'm going to can chicken, I'm just going to get regular chicken. But the pork and the beef, you can often save quite a bit of money on. Take it home and immediately freeze it if you don't have enough to do a can batch, right? And then when you get enough together, can it, and you've got a great stew base, you've got a great soup base, you've got a great base to go with pasta and rice and, and lentils and, and all different types of things. So add meat to your canning regime, I guess is what I'm saying there. Uh, next one, uh, this is from another, man, lots of Eric's today. Uh, Jack, I'm trying to decide about a grad school option. If I borrow 80K and do not work for three years, finish school, and make 200000 as a nurse anesthesiast, option two, become a clinical nurse specialist, which is like a nurse practitioner. School's $25,000 over three years, but I could pay cash when I'm done, uh, and a hundred k job at the end, but no loss of income while I'm in school right now at $60,000 a year. Um, I don't know, dude. I'm not Yoda. I'm not. But let me tell you one flaw in your thought here. I borrow $80,000, do not work for three years, and finish school and make twenty k as a nurse anesthesiast. Unless you have a contract in hand that says, Dear Eric, upon completion of your degree, we will hire you for $200,000 on this date. So help us God, and so help us the state with a notary republic seal and a blessing from Jesus Christ upon it. Unless you got that, you do not have a guarantee of a $200,000 job at the end of this degree. I don't care how many people went to school for it. I don't care how many people came out of school with it and got a job like that. There is no guarantee that you're going to get a job and that you're going to make that kind of money. That said, in the medical field, there's probably not a industry right now that is better suited uh, for higher education. The money's there because of our government and the stupidity within our government. Even as the country goes broke, the money's going to stay. It'll be the last place the money comes out of. 
There's going to be sick people no matter what, and there's going to be sicker people in the future because of the way that we're running our climate, the way that we're running our, our agricultural system, the way we're running our food system. So there's money in medicine, and there'll always be money in medicine. And I would bet that if you have a, a, a degree as a nurse, nurse anesthesiologist, making 200K is probably not out of the picture. So if that's what you want to do, fine. Do you really need to borrow 80K to do that, though? You know, it sounds like you plan on living off the loans in addition to paying for the school. Maybe it requires a full-time school commitment. I don't know. Um, but I'm not comfortable with that amount of debt. I'm really not comfortable with that amount of debt. If you are for that, you know, with that kind of income, and depending on, you know, I said it's not guaranteed, but I really don't know what the percentages are and how likely it is that you would get a job and how likely it is to get that kind of money. But if you can legitimately project a $200,000 income with $80,000 worth of debt, If you'll live on half of your income for two years, your debt's gone. So I can see it there. Um, now, if you go to be a nurse practitioner and you come out and you're saying, at the end of it, I can just pay cash, pay it off. Well, you could also become a nurse practitioner, uh, pay off, pay as you go with your $60,000 worth of income and expect an increase at the end. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's in these schools. Sometimes, guys, I feel like you're asking me to be Yoda, and I can't tell you. I'm just saying that's how I would analyze the numbers. Uh, next one, this comes from Steve. Steve says, Jack, I heard you mention before that all of us are going to have to get used to the possibility of moving down a class when the dollar crashes. Upper middle class to middle class, middle class to lower middle class, etc. How should we mentally and financially prepare for the shakeup before it happens so we can come out the other side in better shape than the rest of the sheep? Well, please advise. It's all about the five survival needs, Steve. What can you do to reduce your dependence on the system and therefore on income for, for, for energy, for food, for water, for shelter, and for security? Those are the things that you have to provide for yourself if you don't want to pay somebody else to do it for you. So to me, my statement is that we're going to move down a class is if we don't do something. We don't have to move down a class. We, don't, we might move down a class in a demographics report, but we don't have to move down a class in our quality of life. So the big things that we need to do right now are, one, do not remain 100% exposed to any one single asset class, which means if all your money's in stocks and bonds and paper, other paper assets, get some of it out. In any way, shape, or form, you have to. So I'd never say liquidate your 401k, but, but, If you only have savings in a 401k and you're sitting on, let's say, $120,000 in a 401k and you said, I'm going to pay the penalties and I'm going to end up costing myself 30 of what's in there to get 20 out and I'm going to put that into something I put my hands on, whether it's cash, whether it's uh, some gold, silver, and some cash, uh, or, or pay down some debt and have some gold, silver, and cash left over, I would understand. I'm not saying that everybody in that situation should do that. I'm just saying you've got to make that one of the things you consider. You've got to start right now building up some level of cash reserves, some level of commodity reserves. You've got to start taking on some level of responsibility for your own food protection, for your health, and for your financial well-being both. Food will double in price over the next 10 years. I, I say that with a certainty, and that's a minimum response that I expect to come from things. If you're paying $2 for something today, in 10 years or less, it will cost you four. All the way around. And those of you with five or six kids, think about how that's going to impact you. And I really believe that's where we're headed. And it might be five years. Uh, the currency collapse that I speak of is not the one uh, that everybody thinks of. It's, it's the type of thing that's happened before 
will happen again under the current system. The system is designed for the currency to collapse. And the reality is the dollar collapsed when we had the Federal Reserve come in. The dollar collapsed under Bretton Woods' uh, conference. The, it, it collapsed the second time under Bretton Woods, too. It, it collapsed when we went off of the Bretton Woods system and went to uh, the dollar as the world's reserve currency under Nixon. Um, to talk about that deeper, I'm going to be bringing uh, uh, Baldy, uh, also known as Tom Coetz, uh, from the Baldy and the Blonde show on, just by himself, without Michelle this time, just to talk about this one issue. So you guys can understand, because I, I think he, he's really dedicated his life. That's his cause, is the Federal Reserve System, uh, the currency of the United States, and the things that have been done to manipulate it. I'm working on getting him back on just to talk about how it's happened in the past so we can get a better view of what it'll look like in the future. But what I see is not the United States defaults on its debt on August 2nd because they didn't raise the debt ceiling. Stupid, nonsensical, political theater. I'm going to tell you something for your mental health and your well-being right now. From now and through August, when you hear the Republicans this, the Democrats that, the President this, blah, 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 debt ceiling, default on debt, change the channel or hit the mute button. Just stop paying attention to this nonsense. It's all being done for your entertainment and your manipulation. So don't suffer fools and allow it to be done to you. Walk away from it now. You'll be happier, and I promise you, nothing they're going to tell you is going to help you. Right, so that's that's one on that. When I see the currency collapse coming, is a point where everybody looks at the system. The city governments have, have begun to fall one after the other, after the other, after the other. I'm working on an article right now about a town in Rhode Island for TRTAM that's about to collapse. That's the third one in two weeks that I've brought up. All right, um, that's going to keep going. It's just going to be just like the banks failing. Remember, the banks started to fail. And remember what the regulators and the government and the media said? Nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see. People are standing in line at the bank to get their money out. It doesn't matter. FDIC is going to cover it. It's all okay. There is no crisis. Go back to your go back to your homes. Go back to your jobs. Don't worry about it. And then they just they went from one here and one there and one over here and one over there. And then boom, 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 boom. They started coming in succession. And then big things like Bear Stearns started to fall apart. And then the the, the, the mortgage giants, Freddie and Fannie started. And then it was, then it was oh my God, there's a collapse. Like, like we couldn't see it coming. Same thing's going to happen in municipal uh, bond market at city and state levels. And eventually when that collapses onto itself enough, and enough they have enough old people to roll out and go, they've lost their pension, they can't pay their bills, Ugh. no good crisis is going to go to waste. They'll come up with this great new currency standard. It'll probably be based on gold. Don't get excited because it'll be used to screw you, and they'll rebase the currency. And what we'll have is it'll look almost like nothing at first. And then this huge inflationary spike, this, this runaway inflationary curve that'll level out and go to a new normal. So it's not going to be inflation in the neighborhood of like 5,000% Zimbabwe dollar type inflation. It'll be this, this big hit that everybody will take right away and they'll say, well, we have to do it. It'll probably lead us into some semblance of a global currency standard. And as that all occurs, the value of everything you own will be decreased And it will seem that way, but what will really happen is the value of the money will decrease. And everybody will lose. Everybody will lose. Even those of you holding gold and silver that will mitigate some damage, you're still going to lose. You're still going to lose. I'm going to lose, you're going to lose, everybody's going to lose, except the people at the top that have the whole trading scheme under their control, the, the Federal Reserve, 
the government, the Treasury Department, and the financial elites because they'll run all the new money through the machine that takes away a piece of it. That's what inflation actually is. As money is created, the people at the top get to suck value from the existing money and keep a piece of what they create. That's how it works. So the things you've got to do is you've got to be mentally prepared for the fact that, yes, this crap's coming. No people like Jack Spierkel are not crazy. You can look at what he's told you in the past and seen everything he said has come to fruition. That means you can trust me. I said that by this time, when everybody was saying it was over with, the recession is going to keep going down. There's no recovery to be seen. False recovery will come, and that we'll see the Dow by mid-2011 at 12,500. I don't even know what it is today. Let me pull it up. Remember, I did this show yesterday compared to when you're listening to it. Let me just pull it up right now see where we're at. Unbelievable, 12,528. All right. What I've been wrong about so far, I said that the unemployment rate would begin to drop. Um, I expected by now people to start hiring, but but I also put out an article that explained where I was wrong about that, that basically the jobs that have lost are gone. Do you understand that? I, this is what no one's telling you right now. The TV talking head won't tell you this. The politician won't tell you this. The people that lost jobs, they didn't get laid off because times were slow. Their jobs during a downturn were eliminated. They were pushed out of the process. Companies went in, we have 10,000 employees, we're screwed if we keep them all. We need to get rid of 2,000. And managers said, we can't get rid of 20% of the workforce. And senior managers said, do it or we'll get rid of you too. And then they said, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to change the company's process and procedure. And they gutted the company by 20%. Most of these companies have hired some people. What they did is all of this dumping created a glut. And they looked out in this massive amount of sea of people out there that lost jobs, 9 million of them, and said, you know, some really good people got caught up in some corporate bureaucracies. Let's cherry pick and let's hire back 3% of the 20%, so we're only down 17% now. And they upgraded their talent pool and they put them back in and they filled the holes. And then they got that, that system running like a top, and that's why these companies are making record-breaking profits now. And where the government did shit that pissed them off, they sent work overseas. It's gone. The only way those people are ever getting a job again is if new companies are formed and new industries are formed. Or their company grows, outgrows their efficiency improvement. Here's what I mean. When a company drops by 20% and is still able to put out 95% of its output because it only lost 5% of its demand, its efficiency is, is a, a nonlinear uh, increase. Which means that at that point, they could probably ramp up to 120% of where they were and not even need what they had when they were 20% below that. They might only need to add 1% or 2% uh, more personnel. Every time you increase efficiency, the, the, uh, the overall efficiency rating per item produced is exponential. So a 1% increase in overall efficiency may reduce your headcount requirement by 3 to 4%. So if you increase efficiency by 20%, you might be able to get by with half the workload. There's companies right now, folks, that are doing well, that are not getting rid of people, but they could. Now, those companies may be holding on to people, waiting for growth, investing in their employees, investing in their business, but they're certainly not going to hire anybody. And all this crap, well, there's plenty of money out there. Why aren't these companies hiring? Because they don't need the employees. See, only a government bureaucrat would ask this moronic type of question. Well, if they have lots of money, why aren't they hiring anybody? Because you go in business to make a freaking profit, you dolt. See, when you're a bureaucrat, you get money, you spend it all. 
If you don't, you get less money next year. They take it away from you. So you, you never want a surplus in a bureaucracy. In a company, a surplus, you morons, is called a profit. And you're lucky you won't exist because that's the part you tax. So why would a company make lots of money and not go hire more people? Because they don't need them to keep making the money. Because they're actually in business to make a profit, to return it to their investors, their shareholders, and, and their principals. That's why you go into business. That's the situation we're in. So what do you do when you're in this situation, realizing these are all the things that are coming? You get real with yourself. You divest yourself of debt. You reduce your cost of living. You take responsibility for your own food production, where and as you can. And you improve the quality of your life right now without spending more than you're already spending. So that when you have less, you can maintain the quality. That's what this whole show has been about from the very beginning, folks. Because I'm not going to lie to you and tell you you can do something that you can't do. Um, let me read you another little quick one here. We're getting ready to wrap up. But uh, uh, Brian sends me an email. says, hey, Jack, I just listened to the Five Horsemen episode. That was the herbs I did last week. I really like it. You should do a survival sous chef podcast uh, or a Food Network show. Anyway, you talked about pork steak, apples, and herbs. And how you never tried it, but you knew it would taste great. Of course, who hasn't heard of a roast pig with an apple in his mouth? So I go to the store after getting off from work, and what's on sale but pork steak for $1.88 a pound? Must have been a sign. I used a pink lady apple, but Granny Smith would probably have been better. Threw some fresh basil in the rice, a uh, definite pop, then picked up some dandelion greens, purslane, and common plantain from the garden, uh, front grass to add to a romaine and red cabbage for a salad. My wife and I loved it. Thanks for the inspiration challenge. Now making some GOB, I guess uh, uh, garlic, uh, oregano, basil oil, and looking forward to trying that out. You rock, dude. Keep up your good work. See, it works, folks. If you focus on the technique, and that's what I'm, I'm really excited about bringing this uh, Chef Maribel on tomorrow because I was listening to her one of her interviews on her YouTube channel, and she was talking about how you don't focus on recipes, you focus on the techniques. So I think it's going to be a good, uh, a good uh, episode tomorrow. Um, that one little article I want to share with you at the end here, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because we're up toward the end of the show now, but it's called Another Sign of Tilapia, the Perfect Factory Fish. And I'll just put a link in and you can read the whole article. Here's the upshot. What they're saying about tilapia is that it's, it's actually incredibly fresh in a lot of situations, that they're actually able now uh, on the other side of the world to have these tilapia netted up, filleted, uh, flash froze and put on a plane and within 12 hours they're on a plate in a restaurant or a household here in America. Uh, all over the Orient they're farming the hell out of these tilapia because they've got a great climate for it. They can farm them right through the winter because it doesn't get cold enough to kill them. Uh, and the tilapia industry is talking about how healthy fish is and how fish is so healthy. But tilapia have kind of a bland taste and part of this because they have less oil and fat and the good oils and fats, the omega-3s really aren't there. And these fish are being fed basically corn and soy. So they're like the chicken of fish, right? You raise them the same way you do chickens. Overpopulated, very, very high density, throw them some pellets every day. As soon as they're big enough, whack them, pack them, and, and, and snack on them, right? And I, I think there's some, there's some truth to this, but I think that if we can do more ourselves here in America to grow our own tilapia and small-scale operations, aquaponic systems, uh, hydropon uh, uh, aquaculture systems and things like that, it doesn't have to be that way. Tilapia are not designed to eat corn and soy, and I think that's the fatal flaw with this analysis, that we're judging the fish based on the way man is treating it based on the way fish are. Look at chicken, all right? You tell me honestly, 
If you take a young chicken that grows up free range, it might be a little bit more dense flesh, a little bit tougher if you want to call it that, but you cook it the right way, we, 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 we mitigate that. But you take a chicken like that that grew up running around, eating some grain and scratch and things like that to supplement, but bugs and, 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 and insects and invertebrates and, and uh, snails and, and, and little lizards and anything it can get its little chicken beak on. And it runs around and it lives the life that a chicken is actually supposed to live. And you put those two pieces of chicken side by side, you tell me there's not a difference in their nutritional output, their flavor, uh, everything about them. You're going to definitely prefer, at least I'm going to definitely prefer, the free range, we'll call it somewhat semi-wild chicken that lives the way it's supposed to. Now, when we grow tilapia in a small pond or a tank or something like that, we can't really recreate the free-range environment that a tilapia has in its native uh, habitat, which, by the way, is Africa. Okay, But what we can do is we can feed it what it's supposed to eat. It's a vegetarian, folks. That's what they really eat. They eat vegetation. So if we cultivate and feed our tilapia duckweed, and when our lettuce plants are starting to bolt in our aquaponic system, we yank them out and we throw them in. And yes, they get some insects. We do maybe some black soldier fly larvae and things like that uh, and give them some additional protein boost from that. We give them a very diet of the things that that fish is actually supposed to eat. I'll reckon we get a much healthier tilapia and a much better tasting tilapia. So... I think tilapia is not the end-all, be-all to all things fish, and it's going to be a long time before I give up eating things like you know trout and catfish and things. And honestly, I prefer trout to, to tilapia. But it's a lot easier to farm a tilapia, and it's a great protein source. So I wanted to give you both sides of that, and I want you to go ahead and read this article today and understand the, the limitations and even somewhat the dangers of commercial tilapia production, but then realize the opportunity exists for the small-scale, truly organic producer of tilapia that actually feeds the daggone fish things that the fish want. And by the way, take less energy and work to grow. Do you know what you need to grow duckweed? Moderately warm temperatures sunlight, water, and duckweed. If you have those, you can go harvest half of your duckweed every week and you'll end up with too much duckweed. Duckweed can almost, almost double itself in three days. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's very high protein and your tilapia would love to eat it. So why? I, I don't get this. Why do we grow? We plow a field, we grow corn, we grind it up, We spray it with, with pesticides and herbicides. We make it into a pellet and we feed it to a fish that would eat duckweed that would grow in the same order the fish is already in. It's asinine on its face. But when you want to do high-end volume production, that system makes place because all of the resources you need for it are already there. All we do is make the pellet a little bit different than we do for a chicken. So that whole distribution system's in place. If this was coming up from the ground and there wasn't another industry to kind of pirate off of, it would have never happened this way in the first place. And I believe that even large-scale production will work better with things like duckweed as a main thing to be fed to the fish because it's so much less expensive and so much easier uh, to grow and to harvest. And I don't see any reason it couldn't be dehydrated and pelletized, honestly. So I think there's a niche there. And I'm wondering who's going to be the first person to really exploit it, to really come up with a nutritionally packed, better tasting uh, tilapia. Last note here, because uh, I was almost going to say organic, and here's what I've decided about the word organic. I'm getting rid of it. It's going out of my vocabulary. Hold on, listen to me. Uh, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 
owns the term organic. And they decide what is and what isn't organic. And it's more about paperwork than reality anymore. So here's what I'd like some ideas from you guys today. You can do this in the show notes. I'm thinking about putting together a certification process for producers of both uh, meat and, and, and vegetable matter, fruits, veggies, things like that. Uh, it would be a little bit different for each because you raise a, a rabbit far differently than a lettuce plant. Uh, so it would be maybe one for meat and one for, for uh, fruits and vegetables and nuts. But you would tick these boxes yourself and say, these are all the things that I do. And then you would just print it out, this little certificate, and we would call it whatever we want to. And we'll trademark it. And no one else gets to use it unless they agree to take those boxes and self-certify. Now, what does that do? Does, does that mean somebody could cheat? Sure, somebody could cheat the system. But you know what? Cheaters get found. And I believe in the private system. And you know what it would cost to do this? Nothing. I'll tell you what, there's probably a thousand dollars worth of programming to build something like this, and maybe five to a thousand, five hundred to a thousand dollars worth of design work to make the site look good and put some nice spin on it and make it work. And it would just sit there and anybody that wanted to say that we do business this way could just go by, tick all the boxes, fix the ones that aren't ticked if they wanted to be legitimate, and print out a certificate that would look really good. And when they go to their local farmer's market, instead of saying they're organic, they could say we are whatever this name is. So what do we call it? And I'm going to make a suggestion. We create a new word so that we can truly own it, so we can truly trademark it. We can say, never been used before because it doesn't exist. And we can combine a couple words. Think of it like permaculture. Permanent culture, permaculture. So what can we come up with that says things are all natural, no pesticides, no herbicides, no genetically modified, and humane treatment? And no damage to the planet. Those are the oh, that's the whole thing, and that's what you're supposed to get when you buy organic. And folks, it's not what you're getting. So that's just an idea I had. I'm willing to fund that, and and I'll take care of all the project management and all. All I need you guys to do is help me come up with the name of what to call it and the criteria that we would put into it. For that it would be very very simple, very very easy to understand, and anybody with a seventh grade or higher education should be able to read the certification and understand exactly what it means. What do you think? I'd like to hear from you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares 
They're living for today.